0: Hi there. Welcome to Finding Space with Alex Tyson, the show that celebrates the everyday legends who put in the hard work to become who they want to be and live the life they want to live. For people who understand that when we practice compassion and find wisdom within ourselves, we find success and happiness. Join me in hearing amazing stories from everyday individuals who have found incredible personal and professional growth through varied and, at times, wild methods of self-improvement and self-responsibility and through their unique perspectives and work, have gone on to better the lives of those around them. From nurturing health to growing your wealth, or enjoying the present to crafting your future, no aspect of life is off topic. G'day everyone, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of Finding Space with Alex Tyson. I'm your host, Alex Tyson. I hope you're having a good day, and I hope you're open to the conversation we're about to have. Look, there's no getting around it. Today's conversation is about stopping drinking and meditating. (laughs) Um, I promise you, it's not as miserable as it may sound. But here, I've got a question for you right now in this moment. What are you hiding from others? What are you lying about? Do you have some elaborate stories that play in your mind to avoid certain experiences or moments? Because here's the thing, guys I do. There's things that, if I'm really honest, I may hide from others and I don't mean anything serious like, you know, half a million dollars in debt or, you know, some weird relationship I have going on. No, no, no. I just mean like, sometimes I've experienced shame around something I'm eating with me having put myself on a pedestal for such a long period of time. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to share what I'm eating with others. So that's just one example. Is there something that you're hiding from others? maybe you haven't been honest to yourself about. I certainly have some stories that play in my mind to avoid certain experiences. No matter how small they are, the fact that when that's happening, there's something going on there that we could probably work on to help us grow as humans. Today's conversation is really about that. We talk about drinking less and we talk about meditating as ways to work through some of these harder things that we're perhaps avoiding. Today, I'm speaking with Claire Robbie. Claire Robbie is the founder of the School of Modern Meditation, or SOM, where she runs meditation classes and workshops in New Zealand. Claire also works with clients one-on-one to help them go sober, helping her clients better understand their relationship with alcohol as a coping mechanism and giving them tools towards becoming sober. And I'm not talking about those with serious alcohol addictions. I'm talking about the everyday social drinker. In today's episode, we hear about Claire's journey which led her from regular drinking and drug consumption to her first year of sobriety and regular meditation. We talk about alcohol and other substances as a form of distraction, cultivating your ability to sit with your feelings of awkwardness, anxiety, fear, or shame, understanding the mind's coping mechanisms, and we tackle ways in which we can move through varying forms of problems with substances such as alcohol, coffee, food, or even shopping. This episode is brought to you by Found Space. We are now open in Australia and New Zealand. Ready to make a change? Looking for infrared sauna? Make your home a place of wellness to live a longer and healthier life. Head to foundspace.com.au or foundspace.co.nz to learn more. And so I give you Claire Robbie. Claire Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me. (laughs)
0: Hey, uh, just before we started recording just now, I'll let a little secret in for the listeners. Before I start any podcast, I like to do a quick, just a very short meditation, just drop into the space, right? And I asked the person I'm interviewing to set an intention. And I think this is episode, like, I want to say almost 30 now. And you're the first person who just said, I want to have fun. And I'm so stoked about that because <laughs> that is always my that is always my intention. And the guest is always like, oh yeah, yeah, forgot about that.
1: Well, I think like the things that I often talk about can be quite heavy. Mm. And I don't want to be known as like this big downer telling people to stop drinking and sit still and meditate all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think there is an element to fun of that at some stage through the through going through those things, right?
1: Yeah, there, there are elements of fun, and there are elements that are really not fun, <laughs> for sure.
0: <laughs> right. So, how did you get into being such an advocate for for meditation and then helping people um, to stop stop drinking? Like, how did you how did you fall into that to that space?
1: It genuinely still surprises me. Like, I'm always telling my students, "I wish I knew. I wish you knew me 15 years ago, because you'd be shocked and horrified <laughs> at the things I used to get up to." And essentially, in my late 20s, I found myself in an horrifically dark place. I lived in Los Angeles, and I'd really lost my way after, you know, having a really good time at school. I did well at school. I was, like, debating, Captain, and I had all these lofty aspirations. And then when I went to university, I think university is where things started to get really out of control for me in terms of prioritizing partying and socializing and boys um you know these instant gratification type (laughs) things prioritizing that over these dreams and this vision i'd had for myself when i was younger at school and so i left university with a random degree I started studying law and it was just too much. Like I, it was the first time in my life I felt really stupid and like the lecturers were just like, wah, 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 wah. So mm-hmm. I stopped stopped that and I ended up with a degree in Russian politics in ancient history. Okay. Which is not going to get you a job potentially anywhere in New Zealand.
0: Right.
1: And so I ended up going overseas to Japan and I lived there for three years. And over in Japan, I think – The lostness was there. I did start working, though, for a radio station, this international radio station, and I started um, putting together little news bulletins. And one of my, like, peripheral dreams when I'd been younger was to be a war correspondent. Mm. And this was kind of like a little gateway for me into journalism. So I worked there as well as teaching English, but I partied way too hard, and I got into some incredibly bad habits, Uh, and hung out with all the wrong people, managed to balance the work-party situation pretty well, which I managed to do (laughs) most of my 20s somehow. Uh, I always had jobs that I really did enjoy. Uh, And then I moved to China, and in terms of my drinking and my partying, things got even worse, although for me... It was better. You know, I was like doing more crazy, intense things and getting myself into more trouble. And for me, that excitement Mm. was quite addictive. Got another job working for another radio station over there. I mean, to cut a long story short, came back to New Zealand for a holiday. And at a wedding, I got incredibly drunk, which is what me and my mates always did at weddings. To not drink at a wedding would be highly unusual. To not get really drunk at a wedding would be highly unusual. But at this particular wedding, and I was only about 25, I tripped over and I landed on my own champagne glass and severed my patella tendon completely. And it was a really serious injury. I couldn't go back to China. I had to rehab it in New Zealand. And this pivotal moment (laughs) didn't sort of highlight to me the problems with how much I was drinking, but it was a gateway into yoga for me. So I was told that I was going to have a limp and my leg would never be the same. And for some reason, I started practicing Bikram yoga. I don't even know I had stumbled upon. I don't even know how I stumbled upon the studio. Started practicing Bikram yoga, and I really liked it. It's the first sort of physical exercise that I'd done where there was kind of a stillness and a peace I would feel after the class. Mm. And at this point in my life, I was actually engaged preparing to get married and that relationship was incredibly volatile as well, as well as the other elements in my life. Eventually to try and cut a long story short, I got married, I moved to Los Angeles. When I moved to LA, I had to leave the very first job that I had seen a real trajectory for my life in. And I was a, I was a journalist for um, one of the leading broadcasters here in New Zealand And I loved that job. But in my unconscious conditioning, because my husband wanted to move to America, it was just sort of assumed that I'd quit my job and move with him. And that's what happened. When I got to the States, that's when things sort of towards the end of my 20s, things really started to get out of control with my drinking. And I got a job eventually after we got our green cards, working in an environment that was really dangerous for someone like me. I ran events at a rooftop club in Hollywood. Mm. So all these different things were available. I was working really long hours. My marriage was not very healthy to say the least. And for me, the most confusing part of this was I was deeply unhappy on the inside, like the, the confusion and even the depression, the anxiety, which I didn't have words for at the time were percolating around under the surface, but on the surface, externally in our lives, we actually were doing really amazing things and ticking all these, you know, all these boxes that people, uh, you know, you sort of think that you're supposed to tick. So, I'd gotten married, we had a lovely wedding. My husband had this amazing job in Hollywood. I was doing this. We travelled all the time. We had a property in New Zealand, so everything was like tick, tick, tick. And so I'd feel like a real sense of guilt and shame that I felt really, really bad about my life. And it got to the stage where I was having panic attacks and really dark ideas of how to get myself out of this situation, compounded by the fact that I drank a lot and I did drugs, which were completely socially acceptable in the circles that I kind of ran in. Had no idea about the correlation between your mental health and substances, no idea that they weren't good for, you know, they're probably exacerbating what I was feeling. But I got to a point where I decided, it wasn't even a decision, it felt like I was kind of pushed in this direction, where I just left, I literally ghosted that life. I left my husband, quit that job, packed up my little Prius, didn't even know where I was going to go, <laughs> drove off into down Sunset Boulevard, literally. And I knew that I had to do something but I just didn't know what and percolating in the periphery was like I think you should stop drinking I think you should stop doing those things but for the next few weeks after leaving my husband because I used to blame him a lot for my drinking because he was a really heavy drinker so I was like it's his fault that I drink so much but I kept doing it even when it wasn't with him so I was like hang on maybe it's not him (laughs) maybe it's you (laughs) so eventually I had this one particular night We right, a, a really huge night out. A few things happened that uh, were incredibly dangerous. And it's lucky that I got out of there. I'm un, relatively unscathed, but full of shame and just the sense of you're better than this. Mm. You have to stop this. And a couple of days after that night, a friend of mine was doing a yoga teacher training. And, you know, up until this stage, I'd done a little bit of Bikram. <laughs> that was it. And I was like, I'm going to do that teacher training. And I had no money, (laughs) barely any yogic experience. And I locked myself into this with the last cash I had to this teacher training, not knowing what I was doing. And fortunately, at this time in Los Angeles, so this is 13 years ago now, the most amazing teachers were readily available to train with. And I went along to this first session, hungover, And I sat there listening to what the teacher, his name is Jayco, he still has a studio in Los Angeles, an amazing man, was saying, and I just had this light bulb moment of like, I'm going to give up drinking for a year. And from the first day of that teacher training, what was a surprise to me was that yoga is not just poses. Yeah. It's a discipline. It's very, very ancient. It's thousands of years old. They don't even know when these practices started. And it's not just a discipline, it's not just tools. There's a code of conduct, there's things we do, there's things we don't do. And it started giving me these tools to integrate my mind and my body and my spirit. And one of the most important things it gave me very early on was this awareness of my internal landscape, how what I was feeling was influencing my thoughts. And from that foundation, that awareness, there was just this massive springboard into making different choices and living a very, very different way. And at the same time as that yoga teacher training, I just so happened to live across the street from a really famous meditation center, the Self-Realization Center in Malibu, which I didn't know it was super famous at the time. I didn't actually know it was super famous until very recently, but I used to go to the lake in that center and just wander around it. And after a while, I noticed there was a temple and people would just walk in and you could sit and you could meditate with some of the monks or the people who were in there. So I'd wander in (laughs) I'd sit down, close my eyes and just wonder (laughs) what the hell I was doing (laughs) and then leave. Oh, that was weird. And then come back. And then eventually I did a little course there. And this was coinciding with going deeper and deeper into yogic practices. And also at the same time, I t- had taken away this coping mechanism. I didn't even know it was a coping mechanism, alcohol. So I stuck to that. I'm not going to drink for a year. One of the hardest things I've ever done. And that was when I realized, oh, this is this has really become a problem for you. You don't know how to relax without alcohol I was single, so going on a date without a drink was just like "Ah." having a good time. All these things, I just realized, what have you done? You've forgotten who you are. You're using the substance to create a personality, to create these states. And coupled with that awareness that I was cultivating, that self-awareness I was cultivating, you take away alcohol and you add in some introspective practices. And you have a real explosion in your self development, and that's kind of where it all started. And I've kept going. I've kept doing these things. I've committed my life to them. I'd always been a teacher, so weirdly, I taught speech and drama when I was young. I, I, I trained in with the eight, uh, with the Trinity College to be a speech and drama teacher, and then I taught English. Then I taught primary school in China as well. By saying I was a primary school teacher when I wasn't <laughs> just kind of like faked my way into that job, which was an amazing job. And so communication and teaching, and then as a journalist, you know, so telling stories and, you know, talking to people has always been something I've loved. So I've always had a deep fascination with the human experience as well. And studying my own experience and the patterns within my behavior And then as I've worked with people over the years with their meditation practice, helping people reset their relationship with alcohol, I think what I am good at is really seeing the patterns in human behavior, because we're very similar. We're so similar. And the recognition of that is in all the ancient traditions in Buddhism and Hinduism and the yogic traditions. They all, you know, they're thousands of years old these practices, but everything they say stands true today. Mm -hmm. So we haven't changed the coping mechanisms, the things we attach to, the things we desire, the flaws we have, our unconscious conditioning. It really has stayed the same through the eons. So seeing that within myself and recognizing that in other people, I think has been incredibly comforting for me and hopefully hopefully And the work that I do, helping people become aware of that within themselves is comforting for them too.
0: Wow. Yeah, what a a journey. (laughs) (laughs) Some shit for like a better expression. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is it about like that awareness that you were cultivating in that time and that you continue to cultivate that helps leading to to long lasting change or to just to to seeing things a little bit differently?
1: Well, you just kind of summed it up yourself really. When we... We can live our lives very unconsciously and I do this exercise with people when I'm teaching them to meditate where I'll take them by surprise and I'll have them lift up their arms and then open and close their hands. It's a kundalini yoga exercise and they have no idea how long they're going to do it for. Quite often it's in a group, so there's lots of people and I'll say to them, okay, the first person to drop their hands uh, has to come up and sing the national anthem in Te Reo Māori. So the looks on people's faces is <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah and they keep doing it and they keep doing it right. and I drag it on for as long as I can and then eventually I'll tell people to bring their hands down they can sit down some of them won't bring their hands down because they think I'm like yeah, tricking think them.
0: it's a trick yeah
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then I'll have them close their eyes and become aware of what they're feeling and then I'll have them reflect back okay what was this experience like and on that sort of backward reflection, they'll talk about, you know, I just didn't want to be the first person to drop my hands. It was really painful. There are some people who like it. You know, I've had had um, professional swimmers who could do this all day long, you know. Um, I did it with a law firm and the competitiveness in the room was profound. And in that little exercise, you have this amazing contrast. Yeah, you have this burning sensation with the thoughts related to that sensation and what you're doing. And then the minute you drop your hands, you have the contrast, relaxation, softening. Thank God that's over. Oh my gosh, I didn't have to sing the national anthem. What is the national anthem? Oh my God, that would be terribly embarrassing. So even in that, there's a little example of how shame can work as a control mechanism for us or the fear of feeling shame. And because I caught those people doing that exercise unawares they're really involved in the whole process. They're participating. They're lost in it. Yeah. And then I get them to contemplate the awareness around what they were just thinking about when they were doing both those things, the contrast, the difference in feelings. And I show them, okay, that's awareness. yeah, Awareness of what's happening in your body, awareness of what was happening or is happening now in your mind. Let's do it again. Yeah. And so we do the exercise again. And this time, instead of being caught unawares and like swept up in the whole emotion thought chain without any kind of awareness, they can feel, okay, the sensations exactly the same, exactly the same feeling. The thoughts might be different. Yeah. Well, they... Noticing the quality of their thoughts, whether they like it, they don't like it, whether it feels good or bad, etc., etc., and then also when they drop their hands, they're aware of that contrast. Oh, my brain's telling me this is better, I like this, this is enjoyable. And that little exercise shows so many things about awareness, it shows you how the quality of um, how people kind of just get lost in an experience, so they're unconscious in an experience and they're being completely controlled by fear or shame, yeah, and how the quality of what you're feeling in your body creates thought and then it shows you the contrast, okay, I preferred that over that and it just gives you this beautiful little snapshot of the mind-body connection, yeah, how sensation is creating thought if you feel relaxed and calm in your body, The thoughts will be different than if you're feeling tense and fearful (laughs) in your body. And that awareness, that constantly coming back into your body, like you said at the beginning, grounding in, uh, I think before we started, you know, coming from that centered place, it doesn't mean you're not going to have contrasting feelings. It doesn't mean you're going to have contrasting experiences. It doesn't mean that life is going to be awesome all the time and you're always going to feel good. But with awareness of how what you're feeling is creating thought and then action potentially or inaction, that awareness gives you power. It gives you the ability to not live in habit and unconscious conditioning but to live in presence and to really start to assess uh, the intention behind behind why you're doing something or the habit, the complete habit behind why you're doing something. And when it comes to shifting habits, which is kind of what I, I spend my life trying to help people do, you know, whether it's add the meditation practice into a, a schedule or take something out, alcohol, which is a very unconscious habitual process. You know, people drink without even knowing they've had a drink a lot of the time. There's nothing you can do to change any of that until you have the spaciousness that comes with awareness. That's why I love the name of your company, Found Space, (laughs) because that's what awareness does. It helps you find space, and then there is choice. And there's a huge possibility of choice in the world, rather than just the blinkered habitual things we've done forever and ever and ever.
0: You know, there's a saying I, I use, which is uh, with clarity comes power because, like, when you, when you fully understand something, then you have the power to, to make choice about it. But perhaps I could change that saying to with space comes power. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, because if you're – you can feel it in your body as soon as your nervous system gets activated, if you're not conscious of that happening, you lose, you completely lose power and your possibilities shrink down. But over the years, I've had so many experiences, even the other day. So we had this rain, massive rain here. And I got a call downstairs, it completely flooded. And there's water, like a waterfall coming down your stairwell. So we think you need to come in. We think your studio's flooded. And I had the moment of like panic. Ah what am I gonna do? I've got this really expensive rug that I got given and I was just like <laughs> But I was also just about to start a Pilates class my and the rain had stopped and my panic told me to get there, sort it out. But with awareness, I was able to go, you know what, you'll be able to make far better decisions if you just do this class, relax, and go there in 45 minutes. Once upon a time I would never have had the ability to choose those things. I would just think, ah, I've got to sort this out. And that's not to say I didn't have the stress response, but I was able to stay in the, um, the discomfort of it because it isn't a good feeling. And that feeling is quite literally, it's been designed so that you take action. But quite often the action we take from that place, especially in the modern world, when we're not just running from a tiger or, you know, it's kind of, it really is life and death, quite often the action we take from there can trickle down into more disaster or more panic, whereas that second action and I calmed down and I did my class and I came here, nothing had actually been touched. We'd had (laughs) no flooding. It was the Mm -hmm. most crazy thing. Like downstairs was knee-deep in water and just a few of our cups had some water in it. And it was I mean, like, whoa, see, there was really no need to panic.
0: Mm, mm. Thinking about some of the stress responses maybe with some people having flooding in Queensland recently. But
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. That has been so horrific. I I know quite a few people who live up there and that's been next level compared to... Mm. what we had here for sure although the woman downstairs it's the fifth time that her business is flooded
0: wow um but it's such a great example claire on on like whether it's a flood or or i I always use the example of like getting a a, an email from your boss (laughs) it's like with some bad news or something and that initial like response of like like oh what have i done oh i've got to fix it you know and it's like whoa like you know uh, (laughs) That, that we're not going to make the best decisions from that place, you know. And no. that that awareness really does kind of kind of give us power. I'm guessing there is, however, more work involved. Like sometimes we can have awareness, but still act on, like, oh, I'm feeling really stressed. Uh, but then you still kind of like it's almost like you give up the awareness and you just kind of fall into following and in whatever you're feeling at that point in time I, I imagine that's where like maybe some more work can be done or just more cultivation of that awareness through meditation those sort of things
1: yeah and you have to um one of the really powerful things with breath work and meditation is that your body starts to trust that it can destimulate the nervous system response mm-hmm. so we do different techniques within breath work where we kind of activate the nervous system and then we bring it down Or maybe you sit to practice and this happens to me regularly. Like there's, there's all these myths about what meditation is and you know, if you're an experienced meditator, then you should experience these certain things. But one of the things I can assure people is that even though I have been meditating daily for over a decade, I still regularly have times when I sit down and it's really hard for me to sit still. Uh, As a business owner, I'm pregnant I have an eight and a half year old, I run teach trainings, I do all these different things. So my mental to do list in the mornings is gnarly (laughs) and sometimes I will sit and I will feel, you know, low grade fight or flight because that's all it is. It's still fight or flight, even though it's just triggered by all the things that I'm sort of perceiving that I have to do. And the practice in those moments is to make friends with that feeling, to let the to-do list purge through my mind, do its thing. And then as I stay with the discomfort of that, you gotta get moving, you've got to get moving, you gotta do this, you gotta do it. if you don't do this, well, if you don't do that, oh my gosh. You know, because the, the feeling is telling you terrible things are gonna happen if you don't do all that stuff. In the lineage of meditation that I teach, we always sit for a minimum of twenty minutes. And there's this beautiful thing that happens around the 15-minute mark where your nervous system goes, oh, I give up. (laughs) (laughs) I've had enough. She's not doing anything. And you have this little shift from adrenaline cortisol. And sometimes it happens earlier. You don't have to wait the full 15 minutes. But for me, when I am really tense or activated, it's a process to relax. But – my body and my mind now knows that if I do this thing, everything shifts. And so, when you do get activated and stressed, there's this sense around it, like now everything's okay. You've got this little thing up your sleeve that you can sit down and hold yourself with, essentially. And then I know that from that place of slightly more relaxed, because it's not all. It's not like no matter you know, whenever I meditate afterwards, I feel like a million bucks and like nothing's bothering me. There might only be a slight shift in that nervous system response, but from that place, there is more space, mm. you know, matter how little the shift is, it was better than it's better to be at that place than where I was before I meditated. Always. There, there are no exceptions to that, but it, it's really important to understand that meditation is not this profoundly blissful experience all the time. And I think uh, when I do tell new students that they're like, Oh <laughs> really? Because they want it to be like a drink. Yeah. It's you know, like, what do you mean we have to do some work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. What? I have to sit in mucky old stress response discomfort. <laughs> Blah. Right. But lots of people do come to meditate meditation Thinking that it is like having a glass of wine. If I do this thing, all my problems will go away. Right. But actually, we wade through the problems <laughs> <laughs> rather than try and like jump over them. Yeah, which is what that. we do yeah. when we drink. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. There's. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Paul Farini books recently, and he he talks like. I don't know if you've heard of Paul Ferrini, but he, he talks a lot about like coming back to the internal love that's within us and this kind of thing. And and he talks about quite often talks about walking through the fear, like not, yeah. not running away from it. We have to go through it because if we go through it, then we can experience the love that's on the other side. Right.
1: And I think that's a really tricky thing to articulate. Like it really has to be experienced. As I go into giving birth for the second time, I am delving into this in a very, very extreme way. The first time I gave birth, I had a natural birth and I was absolutely horrified that that was what birth was. Like I I felt like I'd really been misled (laughs) (laughs) and how you just have to relax and the baby comes out
2: Mm -hmm.
1: from the hypnobirthing (laughs) course that I did. (laughs) And going into the second time with the awareness of how painful it is I'm genuinely scared like I this morning I actually had a moment of like oh god I don't know if I can do this again mm. but it, it I know that it's I have to go through it the first time I was trying to dance around it and I was trying to escape the pain but I know this time I have to relax into that mm. and on a s- smaller sensation level that fight or flight response we have, you know, in our bodies. To go through that, you have to find it. So you have to identify it in your body first, and you have to see the difference between the thoughts that the the, the feeling creates, and then you just have to stay with that feeling. And you mentioned that sort of there's an endless source of love within each of us, which is when some people start to switch off. (laughs) You're like, "What? (laughs) what is this cheesy nonsense? But we are all plugged into a source, yeah? And if we can bring our attention to that feeling, it's like we're bringing that source to that feeling. And when we give it our undivided attention and stay with it rather than have a drink, have a coffee, work harder, the coolest thing happens in that that feeling relaxes or dissolves. And quite often a similar thing will happen and the feeling won't have the same amount of charge because we've started to integrate it. Mm -hmm. But it is really tricky to describe, okay, how do I go through the fear? You know? how do I actually fully experience the fear? And and the answer is you have to do the things that you're scared of to feel um, the feelings fully.
0: Mm. Would you say that uh, as like, if we have the opportunity to, as some of these stressful moments come up, it could be beneficial to actually then go and sit and like really just feel it in that moment, if you can.
1: That's um, exactly what we do in meditation, you know, so we can, You can even with sort of hindsight, if you had something happen during the day and you had a really strong response that evening in your practice, you can sort of remember what was said and you will have the feeling come back. You know, the power of visualizations, how anxiety (laughs) is created and you can practice being with that feeling. And then over time, what happens is you don't need to sit with your eyes closed in stillness for you to be doing the practice, for you to be living your meditation because meditation is not, it's not this separate thing, yeah? It's an integral part of our lives. I was just talking to um, a group of people that I've been teaching this morning and someone said to me, you know, my house is really noisy. Where should I practice? I could never find anywhere still enough or quiet enough um, to practice. And I was like, oh, well, you're not, you're never going to find the perfect place. The only time I've experienced complete silence was on my cousin's farm in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of New Zealand. And we used to climb up these hills to the middle of the farm and there was no sound. And for a city girl, and I would have only been little, that silence was quite discombobulating, Mm. you know, but I remember it like there's no sound. But that's, I think, the only time (laughs) I've experienced complete silence. And with our meditation, noises are not a problem. Noises are part of life and noises actually give us that kind of material, you know. I remember when my son was little and he'd wake up in the middle of my practice, you know, I'm meant to be doing my meditation and then he'd start crying and the rage that would get triggered would surprise me. You know, and I'd sit there and I'd be like, whoa, Mm. just from him crying. Oh, there's something more to this than that. (laughs) (laughs) And it was an opportunity to sit with the discomfort Mm. and move through it. And eventually, many of the triggers I've had in my life are just not there anymore. You know, I, I do exist incredibly differently to, you know, that 15 years ago, where I drank and got myself into all sorts of trouble. I always like to tell people, though, the essence of you stays the same. You know, that like my sense of humor is still the same, that kind of thing. Like the, the things that really make you you, but a lot of the habits and the coping mechanisms. And the, I used to waste a lot of energy on gossip or just things that took away from my life rather than added to my life. And that just doesn't happen anymore as I've sat with some of that unconscious conditioning that was there.
0: Beautiful. What is the link, describe to me the link between alcohol consumption and and the challenges in awareness perhaps, because there's, there was a clear link in your experience as as you stopped drinking and you started Mm. meditating and whatnot. And I'm curious to hear more about that.
1: So alcohol for me, I grew up with really social parents had a very, normal Kiwi upbringing. We spent a lot of time at the beach, barbecues. All my extended family were drinkers. My parents had lots of parties. I've always been a bit of a tomboy. So very early on, I always wanted to hang out with the boys and do what the boys were doing. And when I got into my teenage years, that involved drinking and drugs. And I think essentially what happened for me is – so at school and when I was younger, I loved reading, I loved writing, you know, and I, I talked about this early on. I had these, these dreams in the periphery of these things I wanted to do. And then as I became a teenager, I started to do things that I now know give you a lot of dopamine. Yeah. So it's just like a chemical response. I do this and I get this I feeling. feels good. <laughs> <laughs> and. Compared to the reading and the writing and the swimming and the rock pools and all the little things that I loved doing when I was younger that were incredibly joyful and satisfying and I found deep contentment in, dopamine started winning, yeah? And I got into bad habits where everything I did needed that dopamine or the sensation that drinking would give me. I also wasn't aware that I was really anxious and this is um, I'm not special in this. Most human beings have varying degrees of anxiety percolating around under the surface. That's because we're programmed to be on high alert. You know, we're programmed to be looking out for the danger. And for some of us, it gets a little out of control or a lot out of control. And so when I would drink the alcohol, that feeling would shift. And so as I got older, So, first of all, it's like binge drinking and partying. And then as I got older, it becomes a little more cultured. And so, you can kind of hide behind expensive labels.
0: There's some (laughs) some more stories that the mind comes up with, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a very expensive bottle of ethanol. (laughs) Um, Right, right. And it just started to really permeate into every sort of level of existence for me. Like I had to have fun with alcohol. I had to to relax with alcohol. And so what you do is you lose the ability to feel, Mm -hmm. you know, you lose the ability to feel uncomfortable. You lose the ability to feel anxious. You lose the ability to produce certain uh, sort of certain chemicals that make you feel good feelings because you've become so conditioned to using this external substance. The feelings when you're little that you produce, like I look at my son jumping on the bed or he's an avid drawer, like the deep contentment he has in these moments, they're hormones that have almost a subtler type of felt, you know, perception in your body. And so alcohol kind of starts winning, drugs start winning, and we forget that we have this endless supply of oxytocin and serotonin and all these hormones that we can produce ourselves, because it is human nature to find the easy way out. Mm. So, not only are you losing an ability to feel uncomfortable or you know bad feelings because you mask it with drinking, but then you also <laughs> lose the ability to produce feelings of contentment and joy without an external substance. And so, for me, um, the awareness of that. The awareness and the year I gave up drinking that first year was groundbreaking for me because for whatever reason, I managed to commit to that year and then I did another year. But that first year, I kept living my life. So going to parties, going out for dinner, going on dates and kind of white knuckling my way through the discomfort. But because I was practicing yoga and meditating, I was also like, whoa, at this dinner, you feel so uncomfortable and your brain's going, just have a drink, just have a drink. It'll go away if you just have a drink, just have a drink. Everyone else is having a drink. And then the coolest thing with hanging in there was that you see this feeling changed. Mm -hmm. It shifted, it went away. And weirdly for me, quite often after people had had one or two drinks, As they relaxed, I would relax too. And I realized everyone's feeling the same. Everyone's feeling like this degree of social excitement or anxiety. And I'm feeling that as well. And then as soon as they drink, the resonance shifts and we all relax. Even though I haven't even had a drink because energy is quite literally contagious, I would feel different. And so I had that whole year Paying attention essentially, paying attention to myself, seeing when it was difficult. I was also going through a divorce, so there was a lot of emotion. It was highly charged. and it was a case of just hanging in there. I was able to commit and there were times I had the wobbles. a few times I had wobbles, and fortunately I had two friends who kind of, they still drank and did things, but they knew how important this was to me. and so I remember one Thanksgiving because I was still in the States then, everyone was drinking. And I was like, out loud, I was like, I'll just have a beer. You know, like a beer is not really alcohol, is it? (laughs) The usual (laughs) justification. And one of them just said to me, think about how you'll feel tomorrow. Mm. And that actually was a tool that I've used forever (laughs) after that moment. Think about how I'll feel tomorrow if I have this. Physically, I'll probably, because one for me was never one. Physically, I'll feel yuck. And one of the coolest things in the world is never having a hangover ever again. Like that is, it's like the most golden, I almost feel high off the thought of never having to deal with a hangover. Think about how you'll feel tomorrow. And it wouldn't just be the hangover. I'd be really disappointed in myself. You know, I'd probably feel a bit of shame and guilt. I feel like I have to start again. And so I just play it forward. And that was really helpful, and and um, as a tool to stop me having that first one.
0: <laughs> yeah, and is alcohol analogous for other other substances? In your case, it was alcohol, but for other people, it might be <coughs> something else, smoking or, or coffee or something.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Alcohol is only the tip of the iceberg, even for me, because it doesn't sound like I was a you know a really serious alcoholic when I didn't drink any worse than the majority of my friends. And in fact, compared to most of the people in my circle, I I didn't drink Mm. as much as them. But for me, it was a problem. Mm. But you can substitute any habit, action, (laughs) behavior that you do to make yourself feel better or not feel or avoid the present moment. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So shopping, and for me, shopping was like a real thing in my twenties. You know, the dopamine you get from uh, what's well, essentially a reward. You know, you get this this dopamine hit, and you associate it with. So with shopping, it's looking a certain way, maybe even a little bit of status, depending on what you're buying. And so, what you're essentially trying to do is fill a void or cover up an uncomfortable feeling or a a self-worth something or rather or a sense of um, scarcity with an external thing. And the problem with that is you just need more and more and more of that external thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we start to do things like meditation, um, even exercise to a degree, but exercise can actually be a coping mechanism as well. It just fortunately doesn't have hangovers (laughs) at the end of it and you do get fitter and stronger you know but even exercise can become dangerous for some people at the end of the day anything you're doing so as not to feel there's so many things even I, I studied with a man an amazing amazing human being called Gabor Mate a few years ago in a modality called compassionate inquiry and He's written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which I read at the beginning of my sobriety journey, actually. And at first, I didn't think the book was relevant to me because it's about people who have really serious crack addictions. You know, they're homeless. They're, you know, from generations of really intense and horrific trauma. And you can kind of think, well, you know, I'm just this binge drinking, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I've only got this social drinking problem or whatever, but beautifully in this book, Gabor parallels these people that he's, he worked with for 20 years with his addiction to buying classical music and lots of people scoff, you know, oh, how bad is that? Like, that's not going to physically hurt you. It's not, you know, changing your appearance. You still have a job, etc., etc. But the thing with his classical music addiction was he lied about it. He spent way too much money on it. It would come before his family, Mm. his wife. And so it was incredibly problematic. And the parallels between that in this book really gave me insight to all the little things that we use to cope. And Mm. in the modern world, you know, if you think about how (laughs) modern humans have made everything so comfortable, you know, Everything has been automated. You know, we have hot water at the flick of a switch. We have electricity. We get in our car. You know, for some people, getting on the bus is like, what a headache. That (laughs) is so difficult, you know, because we're deeply avoidant of discomfort. And the thing with discomfort is (laughs) when you go through You know, when you realize you're avoiding certain sensations, like, for example, with the silly bus example, you could start catching the bus and make a new friend. You could start catching the bus and read a whole entire book. You know, there's all these possibilities that open up from us stepping into something that we have this perception that it's not going to be good or difficult.
0: Yeah, that makes me think of a book, uh, The Surrender Experiment, Yes. And, and, yeah, he talked about that exact thing. Like whenever he's, uh, he called it the ego, would come up with reasons as to why not to do something, then he did it. <laughs> like if I had <laughs> I resistance to something, then I knew I had to do it. <laughs> and, oh. you know, it was always, as he called, like the, the hand of the universe, like, you know, playing his life out for him. I mean, you touched in there about um, just in that book, you were saying he, he was lying about it. He wasn't telling his family and a couple other things. Are those some of the signature traits to be aware of to say, hey, I might be addicted to something here?
1: Yeah, I think if you have shame around it, then potentially it might be a little problematic for you. And and that shame is an interesting thing because within the people I work with, helping them um, reset their relationship with alcohol, there is a real shift for people when they get comfortable telling people that they've got a problem.
2: Mm.
1: Like there's a, there's like a stable foundation that you can move from because if you're kind of skirting around it or just not uh, being honest with how problematic something is for you, then it's like you're stepping into thin air almost. And for lots of people that shame that, cause shame's a horrible feeling. You know, it's a really amazing control mechanism, the fear of feeling shame. To step into that shame and feel it, just like stepping into the fear, just like any of these uncomfortable emotions. Once you've like moved into it, then it doesn't scare you anymore. And you realize it's like you, you kind of come home to yourself and the more comfortable you are with who you are, the easier life is really like once you know, start to really know yourself. And that's what the practices of meditation and yoga too help you with. You really start to see who you are as a whole person, not just like the image you've created of perfection, this perfect person who does no wrong and ticks all these boxes. Once you start to see, Oh, I have these, what we might call flaws, or I have these desires, or I have these parts of me that, you know, Jung and Freud talked about the shadow, you know, the unconscious part of us. There's these parts that we try and hide, but as we integrate them and we bring them to the light and we're not ashamed of them, then the little, (laughs) the beautiful little situation (laughs) that eventuates is if I don't have this shame, then I don't want to do the thing that I was doing Mm. to kind of cover up the shame. Mm. But it's, awfully uncomfortable and I had moments like when I I first stopped drinking uh, so I gave up for two years never did drugs again and then I moved back to New Zealand as a single mum and I started drinking again. Not much but and I had a lot of noise around it like why are you doing this? Don't do that. I felt really guilty I felt lots of shame because I was also teaching yoga and there were just Sort of, there was just this disalignment. I had a devout meditation practice that I would navigate around having a wine. If I knew I was going to have a drink, then I'd have to practice beforehand. (laughs) And then if I got up in the morning and I'd had a drink, I'd just feel Mm
2: -hmm.
1: awful. And then there was a New Year's Eve five and a half years ago now, or five and a bit years ago now, that I made the decision that I just wasn't going to drink anymore. And it, it was really easy for me to commit to that this time but I started a group called No Beers Who Cares to try and find some people to hang out with because I didn't really know anyone here in New Zealand who didn't drink. (laughs) And I knew that I needed to find people so I wouldn't feel as lonely as last time. And I got some radio interviews and I started talking about my drinking and my mum said to me one day, do you have to tell everyone so much? Like, do you think it's a good idea? What will people think? And I had this massive shame dump it was after one particularly like vulnerable interview I'd given about drinking around my son, yeah. who was not yet two. And I was, I felt horrible. I was like this, oh God, what have I done? I felt like I was nude in front of the whole entire world.
2: Right.
1: I was like, oh my gosh, I'm you know, what are people gonna think about me, etc. It's all the shame based thoughts. And then I got a message from someone saying, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You've helped me understand my situation a little better. And then I got another message. And then I got another one. And yes, it's external validation, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely helpful in going, okay, okay, okay. I'm not alone. It's not just me. I'm not just some like drunk loser. There are other people, successful people, people with families who are in a similar position. And maybe if we can talk about this, it might be helpful to more people. So that was really helpful with the shame. And then I just, because I never used to say, people would say, why don't you drink? And I'd never say, because I had a problem. I'd say some sort of flowery little answer, but then I just started saying, because it doesn't agree with me, and I I had a problem with alcohol. Mm. And that just stops the conversation. Mm. It really, you know, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere for people to go. Quite often it makes people think and if there's any resonance with them, they might ask you a little more. But unless someone's a complete asshole or has a really serious drinking problem that they're not confronting, you don't usually get a negative response when you just own that it didn't work for you.
0: Words of wisdom right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I feel and function better without it. So I'm going to keep doing Yeah,
1: it. Yeah. And the only people who do challenge that, you know, you, and this is something that I'm reminding people pretty consistently is if it is a problem for them too. Mm-hmm. you know, if there's stuff coming up when, when you say, I'm not going to do this and you're getting funny feedback from people, it tends to mean that there's something in that, that, you know, that's bringing something up to them. And that might be uncomfortable for both of you. Mm. One of the reasons lots of women drink is because they don't want other people to feel bad, Mm. which is a, it's a terrible reason to drink, (laughs) you know, you know, I don't want my friend to feel bad about their drinking. So I'm going to have a drink. It's a terrible reason, (laughs) but lots of people do that. You know, there's a people pleasing element in that and you forget that you're at the expense of your own mental and physical and maybe even spiritual health, you're putting that person first. And maybe that sounds lovely, but long-term, that's no bueno (laughs) for you.
0: Claire, it's coming towards the end of our beautiful conversation here. If people want to find out more about you and get in touch with you or, or work with you, where can they find you and how can they do that?
1: The best place is Instagram, at Claire Robbie. Uh, I also have a beautiful meditation school called the School of Modern Meditation, and we have lots of online classes and we're just starting to get back into the studio after uh, a very long time, which is amazing. So that's wearesom.co. That has an Instagram also. So through either of those channels, it's really easy to get in touch with me. And even if people just have questions about meditation, where to start with meditation, and even if they have Questions or anything in this conversation about alcohol, if anything has come up and you need some support or maybe a little point in the right direction, then that is quite literally what I've devoted my life to, Uh, helping people with, I call it resetting their relationship with alcohol because it's not about completely giving up entirely for everyone. That's not the path for everyone. That's just the path that is working very well for me. But some people just need a little reset which can be as simple as just becoming aware of how they're drinking and then, really importantly, why you're drinking. Why are you having that drink? And once you have that little flash of awareness, just like we spoke about at the beginning, there's the potential to make a different choice. Yeah?
0: Awesome. Do you have any, any last words for all of the people listening right now? you could say one last thing
1: i hope that was a little bit fun <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was fun for me i love
1: that <laughs> I hope it was a little bit fun stop drinking and sit still with your eyes closed that's fun <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure and um hopefully i can have you back on sometime
1: no oh, i'd love that thanks alex
0: If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes.